What's new with Nikon technology? We'll find out today on the Shutterbug Life podcast, episode 60. Welcome to Shutterbug Life Podcast. If photography is not just something you do, but who you are, this is a place for you. In this podcast, we talk about everything you need to be, do, or have to reach your true potential. Let's celebrate the creative photographer's lifestyle with your host, my dad, Linford Morton. Hi, welcome again to the Shutterbug Life Podcast. This is your weekly lifestyle photography podcast where we learn how to be better photographers. I'm your host, Lynn Morton. Of course, you can call me Lynn because all my friends call me Lynn. And I'm so glad that you are with us again for another episode of the podcast. Today, I'm going to, I'm interview, I'm sharing an interview with Nikon Senior Technical Manager, Steve Heiner. And we discuss a wide range of topics, everything from Nikon's newest camera, the D500, to why you should pay more for Nikon lenses, to who these mirrorless cameras they create are really for. And if you're a Nikon shooter, you're going to want to hear this one. And if you're a Canon shooter, go ahead and peek over the fence. It's okay. It won't hurt. It's, I think it's interesting enough. And oh, by the way, I, I do plan on extending the same invitation to Canon if they you know, will come on and talk about their own line. I would love to talk with them. It's no secret to anyone who knows me that I'm a Nikon shooter. And I've, I started shooting with Nikons, oh my goodness, um, almost 20 something years ago, 30 years ago. When I was in college, I shot with a Canon AE-1. They gave me one of those. And then after that, shortly after that, I, I I started shooting with my own cameras. And one of my first digital cameras, one of my, not film cameras, was a, a Nikon, uh, I think N2000 was the name of that one. And since then, I've been shooting on a lot of Nikon. So I, I do have a, a personal interest here, but I am sort of agnostic. So if anyone out there wants to give me a Canon 5D Mark III, I will take it off your hands and put it to good use. Okay, enough of that nonsense. So let's get into this week's episode with Steve Heiner. And let's find out a bit more about Nikon's new products and Nikon technology. Okay, I've got Steve Heiner from from Nikon on the line. Steve, are you there? I am. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this interview. We're so excited to learn more about Nikon and, and what you've got coming down the line, or even an explanation of your current line of cameras. Before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about you and you know how you come to photography and or Nikon? Oh, Linford, yeah. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I like a lot of people, uh, picked up a camera first when I was in junior high school and then uh, in high school, I joined the yearbook staff and the newspaper staff. And of course, I found that uh, 
because I wasn't all that athletically inclined that it was a great way to go to ball games and <laughs> be around all the activities, uh, shooting for the yearbook and the newspaper. So it, w- it was very, it was a very sort of, um, uh, an interest in, in capturing what was going on at uh, that point in my life. And it later turned into a newspaper job at uh, the university I went to. And then later I worked for a newspaper as a photojournalist full time. Uh, so I came kind of from a photojournalism background, but uh, I sort of took a divergent turn. Uh, I joined Nikon 32 years ago. Wow. Uh, and so I've, I've been in a position now where I have uh, held many jobs at Nikon, including being a, a professional markets uh, technical representative, which entailed really sort of supporting photographers in the field, very much like I was originally, where we would go to sporting events and we would assist photographers uh, loan them cameras. We would usually have technicians and help them with their cameras on site uh, at exciting events like the Olympics and the Kentucky Derby and the Indy 500, all these sort of great things. And then uh, later on, I, I moved to New York and uh, took an office job, uh, but I still get out and I still shoot photographs and make videos every once in a while because uh, I think once you get that bug, it's hard to get rid of. So uh, yes. photography has been a big part of my life. And I'm sure it's a part of your listeners' lives, too. Sure, of course. 30 years with Nikon. I'm trying to think of all the changes we've Ah. seen in the last 30 years, probably more so than any other 30-year span in the the company's history. When I I think back on it, it's pretty amazing. Cameras back then, when I started, had about three features. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the aperture on the lens, the shutter speed, you know, uh, then the ASA dial, now the ISO dial. Uh, And there was very, very little to the camera. In fact, um, you know, our responsibility as a camera maker pretty much ended when you took the film out of the camera. Then it was someone else's (laughs) job to process the film. And of course, I was there through the entire switch from film to digital where that whole responsibility fell on us. Um, and that was one thing that uh, we were real intent on was being at the the sort of the uh, uh, crest of the wave going into digital. So we were uh, one of the first companies, the first company to introduce a, a fully built from the ground up digital camera. It was a very exciting time Which one was uh, that? back in 1990. That was the D1 camera. Uh, yes. And up until that up until that point, we had a few Coolpix cameras. We had quite a few Coolpix cameras, which are the small compact cameras. And there were a number of professional film cameras that companies had modified by attaching a digital back to them so that they were a professional device. But they were, you know, thirty or forty thousand dollars back then. And they had a whopping one point three megapixel sensor in them. <laughs> I remember it was that pretty one. crazy. I, I yeah. Was, I was, and then I was we an introduced army the, photographer and I shot with that one. The N90 with the back uh, well, on it. Exactly. Yes. And you know how big and heavy and bulky and sort of unruly the thing was, but right. uh, then we introduced in 1999 the D1, which was, uh, for all intents and purposes, just like a 35-millimeter camera, totally mm-hmm. self-contained, and that was kind of really where it all just sort of took off. Nice, nice. It, it's um, it, it's really interesting. It, even in the last 10 years, I think my first fully digital was the D50, and I think from the D50 to the D500, yeah. which you just announced, it's just been yeah. an incredible journey. So... I, I guess sort of getting getting when I when I announced to my listeners, I sent out an email and said, "Hey, I'm going to be talking with Nikon. What do you want to ask?" And other than asking for free DSLRs, one of the <laughs> <laughs> had to throw. That uh, you, I, I'm sure you're not surprised I get that a lot. I'm, yeah. I'm, oh, I, I don't I, I don't doubt that at, at all. 
<laughs> no, but but the, but the DSLR strategy and for Nikon, and it's it's sort of interesting. I, I'm thinking two extremes. You know, there's the Apple, which says we don't care what you know what people ask for. Steve Jobs famously said, you know, my job is to give them what I think they will need, and then they'll come around to mm-hmm. liking it. And then there's sort of like an Adobe approach where the users scream and they provide a product. And I'm wondering where Nikon falls within that range. Sort of, how do you decide what comes next? Right. Well, I, I can reassure your listeners that uh, that we, that we are probably somewhere in between. Now, obviously, there are things that our designers and engineers would like to do, but we are completely open to suggestions from customers and from professionals alike. Uh, we even have uh, uh, facilities within our organization worldwide to take suggestions and ideas that come from uh, conversations that we have, we can push those up to the factory where they can actually consider these things. And I, I think when you look at our entire line of cameras, uh, and that includes, you know, uh, compact cool picks type cameras, our Nikon one, uh, one inch cameras, as well as all of our DSLRs. Uh, I, th- I think what you see there, uh, in fact, I know what you see <clears throat> is the result of just years of listening to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that you know, we we want to have cameras at as many levels of affordability and ease of operation as we can, uh, and a lot of times that will sort of dictate how much we can actually put into any given camera design. But uh, having been a part of this process for so many years, um, I can I can reassure you that uh, that suggestions that come about from being in the field. Uh, from those of us who uh, talk with professionals on a regular basis and amateurs alike, many of those sort of suggestions do percolate their way up to uh, to our design teams in Tokyo. So a lot of what you see in our cameras today is the result of what people have asked for. Uh, yeah. Now, of course, we can never make everyone happy. And of course, the, the perfect camera has still yet to be designed. But uh, we like to think with as many years under our belt as we have that we make some some really, really great cameras, and of course, uh, really great lenses, which is more or less our, our original forte in this industry was uh, was building lenses long before we uh, actually started building cameras. So, right, right, right. We like to think that we do that very well, but I can I can assure your listeners that uh, that we do in fact uh, take those suggestions and um, and send them up for uh, improving existing designs as well as to put them in the hopper for the next design. So Sure. Good stuff. Now, just talking about your newest uh, in, in terms of your DSLRs, we'll get to the mirrorless in a, in a little bit, but sure. in terms of the DSLRs, the D500, I went to the launch event for the D500, and it was a, yeah. it was really an exciting camera for, for the APS-C. Um, size oh. sensor. What? And yeah. I, I did a video on it, just sort of introducing it. But but if you would, I'm sure you'll have a much better approach than I did. Just tell us some of the highlights. What excites you most about about that DSLR that is hitting? Well, I, I, th- I think I, I think like a lot of folks who've been kind of waiting <laughs> for for this camera for a long time. I was just excited to actually see it here. Um, but of course. Uh, you know, this this is a camera that's been much anticipated, and I think that uh, over the years that we've been kind of waiting for this, they've they've sort of uh, put the right combination of features into 
into an incredibly tough camera, an incredibly capable camera at a very, very affordable price. It has a, a 20.9 megapixel DX format CMOS sensor, and that is coupled with our very latest version of our XSpeed 5 image processing. So that image processing touches not only just the processing of the images, but it also speaks to and addresses the actual overall speed of the camera. Uh, it's pretty remarkable how much that XSpeed 5 really controls what this camera does. Uh, that coupled with the very same autofocus system that was introduced in the D5 on the same day, which is a, we call it a multi-cam, a multi-cam 20K autofocus sensor. And that's just, what does that mean? That's our own, that's our own language, which uh, means that uh, we've actually incorporated the very same autofocus module and of course a camera with a smaller sensor. And it has 153 autofocus points on it. 99 of which are cross-type sensors, you know, which aren't, mm -hmm. uh, you know, particular to either horizontal or vertical uh, subjects, so they work extremely well. Uh, and it fills the entire frame on this particular camera. It doesn't fill the entire frame on the D5 very specifically, but this this actually, using the same autofocus module, really benefits a D500 user because it covers the entire frame. So when you're photographing birds in flight, things like that, there isn't an area of that uh, uh, AF screen or your view screen that uh, doesn't get covered by AF. Um, it has an incredible ISO range. Its base mm -hmm. ISO range is from 100 to 51,200. Mm -hmm. And then it actually has a low one where it can go down to 50 and an incredible high five, which is the equivalent of 1.64 million ISO, <laughs> uh, which sounds pretty crazy. And it is. Mm -hmm. And Quite honestly, you know, there are very few customers who I think will ever use it at that high ISO because it introduces an awful lot of noise and a lot of uh, sort of color noise into the picture. But uh, we have customers who use these, uh, believe it or not, for surveillance and for other things where they're not, okay. you know, creating fine art prints. But uh, if they can read a license plate or make out a face, sometimes that's all that's necessary. So it's a, it's a remarkable camera that can almost see in the dark. Uh, it has, of course, our uh, new SnapBridge built-in Wi-Fi with Bluetooth capability. So once you connect this to your smart device, it'll stay connected and it'll even transfer pictures when your camera's off. Um, it, it is a very seamless way to, to move images directly into your smartphone or your smart device that you can then share like you normally do. So having total connectivity and control over the camera remotely uh, from a smart device is 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 where we're starting to, you know, uh, we're starting to not fight the cell phone revolution, but rather embrace it and trying to use these devices together to uh, best benefit. Uh, the camera shoots at 10 frames per second, so uh, it's no slouch at all when it comes to sports photography and action photography. It has uh, the ability to shoot 4K UHD video, mm -hmm. uh, which you know is the, the coming standard, and uh, that's exciting in a camera this size. Uh, it has dual card slots, including one SD card and one XQD card, which is a high-performance media card similar to what's offered in our D5 camera and our D4 before that. So a lot of really great features in a body that uh, is very, very rugged. Uh, it's a made, made out of a combination of magnesium alloy and other materials. Uh, we've even eliminated the flash on top of the uh, camera, which you would expect at this kind of level of camera, oh, primarily to, 
Okay. We we took the, we took the flash off of this particular design because we wanted the camera to be better weather sealed than ever before. Right. Uh, so this is very similar to the D5 in that we uh, that's typically a weak point in any camera that has a pop up flash. It's, a, it's an excellent way for water to get into your camera. So on this particular model, we decided to uh, do away with that in favor of the. Uh, building up the um, the robustness of the camera and the and the uh, weather sealing, and of course you can always get a very inexpensive uh, SB 400 or 500 flash that'll fit right on this camera and work perfectly well if you do need a flash. But um, it's a it's an awesome camera. It's got a great tilting two and a half or a 2.3 million dot uh, LCD screen on the back, which uh, tilts up and down. Uh, it's just a, an all around uh, super camera and for you know, two thousand, just under two thousand dollars, is quite remarkable that we can offer this level of uh, sophisticated technology. Much of which is found in the D5, our mm-hmm. flagship camera. Mm-hmm. For this price, it's pretty amazing. And I think back, you know, we were talking, we were kind of reminiscing about the digital age, and it was pretty interesting that uh, just a few years after that original D1 came out, we introduced a consumer level camera called the D100. Right. Um, that, that came out. Uh, it was under six megapixels. It had a mm-hmm. like a one and a half inch screen. It was, you know, then it was pretty a pretty hot camera. But you look back in retrospect, and we were charging the exact same price nineteen ninety nine ninety five for that camera then, <laughs> and all the stuff that the D five hundred has in it for the very same price in twenty sixteen. I think is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that 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 is interesting. Um. So, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of looking at the D500 for clues as to where everything else is going as well. And, and the D500 was a, a pretty exciting camera. You, yeah. you talk about um, the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And I, I did get some questions about that because yeah. people are asking about, you know, where you're going with this. You know that the the dongle that you for like the D six hundred that you plugged in to use yeah. Wi Fi, you know, was a little disappointing, quite honestly. And 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 I I love Nikon's, but I found that frustrating to use. And I'm understanding that this one now with Bluetooth will be so much easier to connect and download images on yeah. the go. Um, is that something we're we're looking forward to seeing more of in terms of going forward? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, when we announced SnapBridge, which is our new uh, connectivity uh, plan, uh, all of our cameras from this point forward will have the same uh, uniform operation under the SnapBridge app. So in other words, that one app will be available for all of these cameras. And there are a lot of advantages. I mean, the the, the WU, uh, the little connector um, add-on Wi-Fi device, Mm -hmm. uh, as frustrating as that was for a lot of people, there, there weren't a lot of cameras uh, DSLRs or otherwise at the same time that we even offered Wi-Fi. So right, as kludgy right. and sort of inconvenient as it seemed, it was it was our first attempt to um, to to sort of connect or or to bridge that gap between the smart device and a and a camera. Now, of course, one of the downsides of that is that you had to jump off of your existing Wi-Fi network that you were connected right. to in order to connect to the camera. So it made a peer-to-peer connection, and that of course obviated the ability to snap a picture, have it go to your phone, and then send it over a Wi-Fi connection. You had to send it over your cellular. So now with the SnapBridge, by adding not only NFC and Bluetooth low energy, uh, you can take a phone conceivably, like an Android phone that has NFC in it, simply touch it to the camera, 
mm-hmm. and it will do the connection. The pairing will be automatic, mm-hmm. and then it will connect by Bluetooth. And so when you shoot a picture, what it'll do is it'll actually send those pictures over in the background, background via Bluetooth so that you don't have to jump off of your Wi-Fi network if you, if you don't want to. Now, if you want to do more sophisticated control, like if you want to do remote control of the camera or if you want to browse the memory card on the camera, it's kind of hard to do with Bluetooth because the uh, data transfer isn't nearly as fast. So there's an opportunity to switch over to Wi-Fi to improve that performance so that you can do other things. But the best part is, is that when you're just traveling in a foreign city or even here in the United States and you're snapping pictures and your phone's in your pocket like it always is, once these two are paired, you don't have to think twice. You can tell the app to download these pictures, small versions of the pictures that are easily shared and that won't take up a lot of memory on your phone. And those pictures will just be automatically going by Bluetooth low energy into your smart device, which you can then uh, find in your your camera roll and then just share them the way you normally would. So there's a, a tremendous amount of convenience in this SnapBridge system that didn't exist with our earlier Wi-Fi implementation. So I think you're going to see moving forward that this is going to make everything very streamlined. We've made the the connection streamlined by using NFC for the pairing. We've used Bluetooth Low Energy to obviate you having to leave your network uh, and to facilitate transferring those pictures. Even in the background, when you turn your camera off, it'll continue to use BLE or Bluetooth Low Energy to move those pictures at almost an infinitesimal power consumption. So it's it's quite efficient. Yeah, yeah. But I think the, you're going to see a lot more of this moving forward, definitely. Good, good. It, it, it sounds really interesting. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that when you are connected to Bluetooth that it's moving the images at, at low-resolution size images, or is it sending the full well, raw you, size? Or, or both? Yeah, you, you, you can actually move a full-size image, but the app is smart enough to know that the data transfer and how many pictures you have in queue might bog the process down. The, right. the app, I've seen the... I've seen the uh, prototype of the app, and it will actually clue you. It'll say, you know, this might take a while. Uh, do you want to switch on your Wi-Fi? So it gives you the opportunity, if you're not using the Wi-Fi network at the time, you can switch over to Wi-Fi where that transfer will happen much, much faster. Uh, but the way that we've designed this system is so that uh, because usually getting those images onto your phone, it's not a very good place to store your NEFs or your full-size images. Right. It's usually that you want to take a high-quality picture. You want one that is, you know, not huge, but something you can send somebody that good they can for tell. Yeah, <laughs> that was shot with a DSLR instead right. of with a camera phone. Uh, you know, so the ability to move over small, uh, you know, two-megapixel images uh, is just perfect for sharing. That's that's more than adequate for most social network sharing. And the other cool thing is that we've attached this to a an online cloud service that we have called Nikon Image Space. And if you sign up for that, which is free, you get two gigabytes. And if you register your camera with us up there, we'll give you 20 gigabytes. And you can also set this your uh, app up so that when the pictures come out of your phone, out of your camera, and they go to your phone, your phone will automatically forward them to Nikon Image Space and uh, populate uh, your uh, your cloud service up there. Uh, for for simply just registering your camera. And the best part about that is that whenever we have a firmware update, we can actually push you a notification that there's a firmware update for your camera right on the SnapBridge app. Uh, And it does other cool things, like it will allow you to connect your pictures 
um, to the GPS data in your phone. So you right. don't really need a GP, you don't need a GPS in your camera anymore if you're going to use SnapBridge because the picture will go through your phone and that's where it will attach your location data, which is right there in your, uh, in your phone anyway. If you've got location data turned on and you have it turned on in the app, and it'll also synchronize the time on your camera and your pictures with your uh, with the clock in your phone too, which is really cool. So they're they're very very integrated when these two are connected and operating. Uh, it's 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 a symbiotic relationship, and that's that's really the way we sort of envision working with uh, these kind of devices because they offer a great deal of um, versatility. Yeah, to say. yeah, that, that's. Well, one of the things I really was I liked to see is that, that app. When 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 would we see that? Is that on the street yet? It wasn't the last time I looked for. Not it. yet. It'll it'll be out in. Uh, I guess it'll be out in a few weeks. Okay. <clears throat> now now when when you're using that process and let's say you're connected using Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. would it be like a tethering almost in terms of the speed? Like I've got my iPad next to me while I'm shooting, and it's transferring. Will I be able to see it pop up as fast as? Oh sure. As, as oh yeah, it'll, it'll move pretty quick. Uh, uh-huh. Even a full size image will move pretty quick. Yes. Now a NEF image or a a raw image, I you know that could take a while because okay. that's a right. That's, a, that's usually a you know a bigger a bigger file, and it's got uh, greater bit depth. So there's a lot more there's a lot more file there, even though it doesn't look like it's a whole lot bigger. It's that's yeah. that's probably going to move a little slow, but you know, moving full size JPEGs, uh, and, and it kind of depends on the size of the sensor and the camera too. Mm-hmm. You know, this is only a twenty megapixel sensor, so it's uh, by no means the the highest megapixel count in our lineup of cameras. In fact, it's a little lower than most just to accomplish the low light capability. So, a twenty megapixel JPEG uh, from this camera will move over within seconds. You touched on earlier the, the X-Speed 5, and I remember when I was at the launch event, the yeah. the rep who was talking really went into discussing why that was important. I, I know a lot of of photographers you see get sort of lost in the pixel counting, how many megapixels is yeah. this camera. But what role would, would, would let's say, your, the X-Speed 5 play in determining the quality of the final image? Uh, it's it determines every, everything, you know, it, it really, like I was saying it, it, even beyond just the actual processing of the image, um, it, it touches things like the metering system, uh, which of course is now highly sophisticated with, uh, 180,000 pixels. So the metering system can actually draw a fairly, uh, fairly detailed picture of what it is you're taking a picture of and can determine shapes and sizes and colors. And that all has to be sort of uh, uh, deciphered uh, to establish uh, things like face priority. I mean, the metering system can tell whether there's a face in the picture, even without it indicating it to you on the LCD or through the viewfinder, which it can't do. Uh, it will actually factor that into the metering of the camera. That's all That's mm-hmm. all an X-Speed process. Uh, it touches on white balance. It touches on flash. Uh, on exposure, on autofocus, uh, X-Speed 5 literally is the brain of this camera. That is, that is where everything has taken place. Now, D500 and D5, for the very first time, have actually uh, divided the responsibilities by actually moving the autofocus uh, out of X-Speed uh, per se. And, in other words, we have dedicated a CPU simply to autofocus now. Now that is 
inextricably connected to the XSpeed process, but we've even devoted a whole separate CPU just for the autofocus system uh, in these newest cameras too, because uh, we don't want to put that extra burden on the XSpeed. Uh, the, the faster cameras go and the more information they have to process, uh, we want to streamline that process. So uh, we've actually uh, um, uh, developed a um, its own CPU for the autofocus system. But all of these Almost every function of the camera is inextricably connected to the X-Speed uh, image processing. That's why the next generation, whatever it is, is always so exciting. It seems like just sort of, you know, marketing speak, but we wanted to give a name to all of the things that we've learned in digital photography. And that's really what X-Speed represents. It's not about a part. It's not about a single chip. Um, X-Speed is kind of a concept, and it's, uh, it's an umbrella under which all these technologies improve and work together uh, to, to make the product as good as it is. I know that sounds like a, you know, a, a little bit of gobbledygook, but it's, it, it really is. There is no one single part that you can say, that's an X-Speed chip, even though it is labeled on the chip mm. X-Speed. Uh, it's, it's the totality of everything we've learned, so it, it, it touches everything. Uh, teller, uh, touches the, the color interpretation, the processing of the file, the white balance, the exposure, the autofocus, uh, the speed of the motor, the, the 4K UHD video recording that relies heavily on the X-Speed processing. <clears throat> Excuse me. All of these things are are, are heavily reliant on XP. That's why it's so central to what these cameras do. Okay. Um. Just just the, thanks for that. Uh, backing up just a sure. bit to the to the D five hundred. One of the the questions I had because when I heard um, Alex, I guess the guy who did the the pitch, uh, talk about mm-hmm. with the new XQD. Um, card you can buffer up to 200 frames in in a shoot i thought to myself well good lord why is that necessary and (laughs) you know like why would you need to shoot for 20 seconds straight and if you did why not just shoot 4k video and pull out frames from (laughs) what you had there so set me straight here (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I well, you know, and this is something I had to kind of learn the hard way. As much as as much as it's tempting to want to just say, well, gee whiz, why not just shoot uh, 4K UHD footage and and pull still frames? But you know, the more you get into video, the more you learn about the fundamentals of video. Just like just like learning photography all over again. And I don't know how many of your listeners are also interested in video, but it was something that I I became interested in, and especially since our cameras actually shoot video, but it goes way back. And 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 I learned very early on that the way to make the best looking video is to use very specific shutter speeds based upon the right. frame rate that you use. And in not in every instance, but you know, if you're shooting action and you're shooting video of that action and you're using the appropriate shutter speed, it's going to be somewhere between a 60th and 125th of a second, which is right. really not adequate to stop action Got per it. single frame. I mean, the whole idea of video is that you want to introduce just a little bit of blur in each of those frames so that they blend together smoothly as you're uh, as you're playing back your video. But uh, what ends up happening is that uh, when you try and extract a still frame, uh, you all of a sudden learn that maybe that shutter speed wasn't adequate for whatever it is you're shooting. Now, if that 
subject is stationary, there's certainly no reason why you can't do it. In fact, all of our cameras have the ability to extract a still frame from a movie file within the camera and create a JPEG that just gets recorded to the card and you can download or you can move to your phone if you want to. So that provision is built into all of our cameras. But the the 20 frames uh, or the uh, 10 frames per second you were mentioning earlier, you know, I, I never would have thought people would shoot stuff like that, but I am seeing more and more people do more and more creative things. Mm-hmm. I watched a few weeks ago, somebody had actually posted a music video online that they had created entirely from still photographs. And this entire sequence in this uh, music video was shot at a high framing rate, mm-hmm. and they just pounded down the button and let it go, and and it had a very kind of jerky, artistic look to it. There's a there's a single example of where somebody might use uh, 200 frames at 10 frames per second to create a particular effect, but also the sort of continuity that comes from uh, those frames happening so close together. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Sports photographers might do it. Uh, I know that I have done it in concerts where I've got remote cameras and I need just, you know, 20 seconds of a particular firework or, uh, you know, whatever kind of thing is going on on stage. And I'll just mash down on the remote button and I'll just lock it down until it runs out. Uh, And 200, 200 frames gives me the choice to go back and choose exactly the frames that I need. And in some instances, I've actually used multiples of those frames to create a little bit of mm-hmm. stop motion, acting, which is kind of fun. So they're, they're all, you know, I believe me, your, your listeners will probably tell us 101 <laughs> uses for uh, 10 frames per second to 200 frames. But, you know, we do tend to kind of overbuild some aspects. Now, mm-hmm. you know, people will ask, well, why doesn't it do 300 frames or, you know, what's wrong <laughs> with just a hundred? But Right. Um, you know, there are other other considerations also, some of the mechanics and then, you know, just taking that many pictures sometimes. But that's the beauty of the XQD is that the, the right speed to that card is so fast that you don't even have to think about buffer stall. Mm-hmm. I think that's the point of the exercise in right. saying, you know, you confidently shoot 200 pictures without even stopping at 10 frames a second. Not that many people would. But it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, you buy a new fast car and you know it goes, you know, X miles an hour. You may never go there, but it's <laughs> nice to know it can when you want to. That's right. So th- there is some of that um, that going on here, too. But uh, the, the nice thing is that uh, you can shoot 10 frames for short bursts whenever you need to and, and, and have the confidence that you're not going to run up against the depth of the buffer, buffer at all. I remember that was... That was common, you know, in the early days of digital. Right. You could only shoot, you know, a handful of pictures, and then you'd had to wait, and that right. was super frustrating. So we've gotten around that, and I guess this is just proof that uh, you don't have to wait anymore. Cool. Um, you talked about your lenses being really the the hallmark of of, of Nikon, and and even before cameras, you were you were big on lenses. But I'm going to still ask you to make the case for lens, for Nikon lenses. Be- yes. So if someone is shooting, I got a number of people with this question. If I can, for instance, buy a, a, Nike, a, a 24 to 70 from an off brand and mm-hmm. save, you know, a few hundred, maybe even a thousand or whatever it is these days, dollars, mm-hmm. why wouldn't I? Well, I, and there, you know, a lot of great lenses out there. Um, I tend to, obviously, my opinion is biased towards Nikon. Right. I mean, that's what it, that's what attracted me to picking up a Nikon. 
uh, back when I was a kid. It was the, it was sort of the pinnacle, you know, and I knew their legend, lenses were legendary, and that was the reason why I got interested in it. Now, there are obviously a lot of great lenses that have come around, and especially lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a few things that you might want to consider is that um, – you know, when when you're mismatching parts, whether those third party manufacturers make them to our specifications or not, is not something we know. I mean, we, we don't take it upon ourselves to necessarily go and test those lenses. And I I suspect that uh, the, the manufacturers, of those lenses have done their own testing and customers, uh, by virtue of using these products, have, have had good and bad results. But uh, some of the things that I would consider is that um, uh, that the the lenses are built to the same kind of tolerances that our cameras and our mount are built. And the communication between the camera and the lens is becoming more and more important. Um, you know, the days when there was simply a mechanical linkage that ran the metering system and that was it in lenses, those days are over with. So it's not only the autofocus connections in order to drive the motors in the lens, but it's also things like distance information, which is critical to metering and flash photography in the Nikon system. I'm not positive that uh, every uh, third-party lens out there provides distance information. We have a device called a rotary encoder that's in our lenses, which when focused on a subject provides the camera digital data about the exact distance so that it can use that uh, to um, evaluate not only the best metering pattern or the best uh, metering for that scene, but it can also act as a check and balance. Mm-hmm. For instance, if you go to shoot a flash picture of a bride wearing a very highly reflect- reflective dress, mm-hmm. some TTL systems would rely entirely upon that reflected light coming off of that white dress, and of course they would then shut down the aperture or underexpose. Uh, because of that white light coming back at the camera. That's what a TTL system does. But in our system, because of this distance information, the camera sees that extra bright light coming back at the metering system in the camera, and it checks that against the distance information. So it says, well, this is an unusually bright scene for a subject that's only 12 feet away. So it can act kind of as a check and balance as to uh, distance versus reflection in flash photography. So distance information, uh, communication about aperture, communication about focus, um, those are shall or shouldn't be overlooked because it's more than just the physical or the mechanical connection of a lens. It's also about the um, the, the the handing back and forth of information from the camera to the uh, to the lens itself uh, electronically as well. I happen to think that Nikon uh, has. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why we've been making lenses since 1917. We've been very successful at it, and I think we do it very, very well. Um, you know, if somebody wants to save a little bit of money instead of buying a, you know, a third-party lens that may or may not work in every situation, uh, I would consider a used Nikkor lenses. I mean, there's a lot of people out there right. who buy the latest thing and then they get rid of the 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 lens that they have, and you can save a great deal of money and Usually Nikon owners are pretty delicate with their equipment. They don't have to be because the stuff's pretty well built. But I, I don't know. I, it's, mm-hmm. it's a difficult position for me to be in. But I, I personally think that Nikkor lenses are superior to everything out there almost. I'm sure that there are some lenses that probably I know there are some lenses that are extremely good and, and uh, highly regarded. But uh, I just think because I am one who uh, prefers to keep the parts on my camera 
the same brand as my camera, it tends to work better for me personally. And a lot of our customers tell us the same thing. So it's, it's, a, you know, it's a semi-free country. It's entirely <laughs> up to what they do, but uh, uh, it just seems to me that there's a certain amount of sense in trying to stick with the same manufacturer because our lens team members, they uh, integrate with our camera team members and everything fits together nicely and uh, is meant to work together nicely and optimally. Good. So hey. that's, that's my best argument for that. I'm not going to bash anybody else's lenses because there's a lot of good stuff out there, but right. uh, I think that uh, Nikkor lenses uh, on Nikon bodies is, is really, uh, the sort of ideal pairing. Got it. Tell me about this key mission 360. That looks kind of interesting. It looks exciting. What's the three mission 360. Yeah, we, we made it, we made what we call a pre-announcement at, uh, uh, at CEDA. Uh, so I've, I've, I, I'm really only allowed to talk about four basic aspects of this camera. Okay. Um, it does shoot 4k mm-hmm. UHD. So and it has uh, it is shockproof and it's waterproof um, and uh, it uh, is it's a pretty cool camera. I mean, you've seen it. Most people have seen it. It, it has a lens on each side mm-hmm. uh, and it does shoot a true 360 movie. It will also shoot stills, but that's really about all I can say about the camera uh, until we uh, actually officially announce it, which uh, hopefully will be coming soon. Oh, so it's not even. But it's a it's a okay. it's a pretty it's a pretty unique camera. I would encourage everybody who hasn't seen or heard about this to go check out our our website at NikonUSA.com. I think we have a demonstration video up there, but we don't we, we're not playing it back in 360. But uh, if people haven't experienced this, you got to check this out. It's totally cool. On YouTube, there is a 360 video channel, and you can go up there and you can either navigate it with your smartphone by moving around. Uh, or you can actually navigate it with a mouse on a computer screen. Or you, even better yet, you can put your phone in like a cardboard, uh, like Google Cardboard, or a, mm-hmm. uh, there are some electronic viewers or that you can uh, put it in and attach like goggles and watch them. Uh, and it's pretty remarkable. And, and this camera will basically produce the same kind of uh, output. But uh, unfortunately, uh, Linford, I can't, I can't say too much because we okay. haven't officially announced it but uh i think you're right when when you say that this is uh this is a camera that you would probably you know uh attach to your helmet and jump out of an airplane or something like that but it but it's also the kind of a camera that i think i would take on a vacation and just put it on the table when i'm eating lunch in paris or something Mm. you know because it's a camera that basically captures everything around you and it allows you to play that back and sort of experience it later which is really cool interesting looking forward to seeing more on that yeah um and then i think we're running a uh, long in time so i, I did want to touch on the your mirrorless cameras and or yeah. strategy it's it seems mm-hmm. like you know the the, the biggest complaint you will if i, I hear is the, it, it uses the, the like one inch size sensor the small sensor sure. it, it, is mm-hmm. that is that sort of part of your strategy are you committed to you know, keeping your mirrorless within that range for maybe size reasons or or or, or are you considering getting an APS-C size um sensor in a mirrorless what, where you, what's i, uh, I, I wish I, I wish i could tell you about future products but of course uh, as you would expect linford i can't yeah. talk about stuff that uh that may or may not come in the future, but let me let me just give you an idea of Maybe where the Nikon One, yeah, yeah, the, the, where the idea of the of the Nikon One came from. This was this was uh, we introduced this back in September of uh, 2011, so it wasn't all that long ago. It was you know five years or so, um, where 
you know there were a there were a, quite a few mirrorless uh, cameras on the market um, that originally sort of promised uh, you know smaller size and higher performance and and even today there are a lot of mirrorless cameras that really don't deliver on that. Uh, the whole idea of this camera was for people who don't necessarily want to be photographers. Um, these cameras were primarily designed for people who were interested in whatever they had going on in their lives. And this was a small, compact, easy to carry, easy to use way to capture those pictures in extremely high quality. And I mean, extremely high quality versus a compact Coolpix type camera, which are still very high quality pictures, but we're talking about a very small sensor in those cameras. Mm -hmm. So it didn't make much sense when, when we got right down to it, because when you put a large sensor in a camera, just because it doesn't have a mirror in it doesn't make it automatically smaller. You've only taken the mirror mechanism out, but the flange back distance from the lens to the sensor, that's, that's, a, that's a distance that you can't uh, change all that much. So the, the camera doesn't get a lot smaller until you shrink the entire system. We saw a lot of mirrorless cameras that were very small and very lightweight until you went and put a lens on them. Then it kind right. of obviated the, right. the whole point of the exercise of making a smaller, lighter, faster camera. So the Nikon one was designed as a totally smaller system. Lenses, cameras, everything was meant to be smaller. And I think it delivers on that promise. Now, what we didn't expect was the extreme high performance. You talk about this one-inch sensor. By virtue of the size of that sensor, uh, we're able to actually shoot up to 20 frames per second with full AF and auto exposure at full resolution in these cameras, or as high as 60 frames per second at full resolution. That's 60 frames per second, individual photographs, not a movie file, individual full resolution photographs with the focus and exposure locked on the first frame. You can go to 30 and 60 frames a second. So extremely fast. Plus they have both phase detect and contrast detect autofocus sensors right on the image sensor itself. Uh, five years ago, that was, that was relatively new. Now it's fairly commonplace. But that meant that you had extremely responsive autofocus in a camera, very similar to what you would get in a DSLR. And I still think that the Nikon One is probably, if not the among the fastest um, mirrorless uh, or advanced uh, cameras uh, like this um, in, in terms of speed. I mean, it, its focus is remarkable. And then the ability to fire that fast uh, and, of course, you know, we have bodies at uh, all kinds of prices, and we even have one that's an SLR, or not an SLR, but an, an interchangeable lens, ver, uh, a Nikon one called the AW1 that's fully waterproof with interchangeable lenses. Oh, that's wow. that We haven't done that since we introduced the Nikonis RS, you know, 25 years ago. To have a, a camera that actually has interchangeable lenses that doesn't require a housing to just jump in the water with, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and... All of these cameras, I think the, the whole philosophy behind the Nikon One is to, is to make a camera that produces very high quality pictures, <clears throat> excuse me, in a very small, compact, easy to use package for people who don't necessarily know photography or want to be photographers. They were, you know, uh, they, they have other kinds of hobbies they're interested in and they want to use a camera to document what it is they do, even just their everyday lives. So the Nikon One, I think, is a, is a great system. Uh, we've got a professional version in the V3. 
Uh, we've got the J5, the J4, and the J3, and then we have some lower price models and the AW1 and a line of lenses. Uh, it's 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 a neat system. It really is. And and people think that one inch sensor is really small, but when you look at the output from that, it's quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. Okay. Very For good. It, it really belies its own size. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, um, we're wrapping up with just one more one more question for sure. you. And uh, I, I did a podcast uh, a, a few months ago called the D- the danger in gray market cameras. And you know, I like to consider the definitive work, but <laughs> clearly there's still questions <laughs> there. Um, my mm-hmm. my dad calls me the other the other day and says he found a a D fifty five hundred for like four hundred bucks online, and should he buy it? And I said, I'm sorry, I said, you know, probably not. But but for someone who is looking, he's, well, why not? And I sort of went through my reasoning. But if someone is looking for a deal and they have a high tolerance for risk, what is what is the danger in buying gray market from Nikon yeah. USA's point of view? Yeah, well, it's, you know, these are products that uh, weren't intended to sell uh, here and they're warranty. They're not warrantied in this in the United States. So, mm-hmm. um, I, 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 you know, I really don't want to get into too much of the details, but I it's just it, it is just like you said, it's a risky proposition. And I've had people say, well, you know, I saved X number of dollars and then, you know, a year later, something's wrong with their camera and they can't get it fixed because, it has to basically, you know, it's only warranted in the country it was originally designed to be sold in. So right. it's 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 something that I would uh, I would uh, you know warn people against. I just don't think it's a it's as much as these uh, products are incredibly reliable. Uh, they are meant to last a long time. Uh, it would be a shame to spend an awful lot of money on a camera that uh, would be next to impossible to get fixed if something goes wrong. It's just simply. Recall. Yeah, it's it, you know, you know, I I don't know. It it really depends. If there's if there's a recall, it's usually from the manufacturer. But if you have something wrong with a camera and you need to get it repaired, and um, you know the service center won't because it's not warranted in the United States or wasn't purchased in the United States, then uh, or wasn't intended to be, it it can be a problem. So I would just warn people in general about uh, okay about buying legitimate products. I just think it's a safer policy. Gotcha. Well, thank you. I mean, we've covered it quite a bit. Did I miss anything that uh, would be important for to you to talk about? Well, I, you know what, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but we can always do this again if you're uh, okay. so kind to invite me back. We can uh, we can do this once again. So, would, would love that when we have some more products. I'm guessing okay. we we have some full frames coming down the the pike. So maybe after some of the new ones come out, we can, we can get get together again. All right. Thank you so much, okay. Steve. Really appreciate Sounds your good. time. Thanks, Linford. I appreciate it very much. I hope you enjoyed that talk with Steve. We covered a lot of info, so I'm going to leave it there not to get into too much more during this episode. I would like to react to some of the things we talked about there, and maybe I'll do that in a subsequent episode or maybe a bonus. Who knows how I will um, deal with that. But I think we've got a lot there to to chew on. And if you have questions as a result of it, then, of course, you can just drop them into the comments and I will... I will work on responding to any of the questions. Now, what I forgot to point out in the beginning was this was based on a lot of your questions. And you might have heard your question there or not. If you had 
a question that was really specific to your situation. You probably didn't hear it because I went with those that had a broader applicability to most most listeners and most photographers. So if you said, you know, I called about my Nikon D7100 four times and no one returned my phone call, that probably did not make it into the list of questions. There was so many, so much to cover. And, you know, I didn't even get through all the questions I had for Steve. And you see how long this ran. So I'm glad that he was so gracious and uh, shared, spent so much time with us and agree, has agreed to come back again sometime in the future. So maybe we can get some other questions answered. Hi, this is Lynn. If your pictures aren't turning out the way you want, an easy solution might be just around the corner. Now, I taught thousands of photographers doing my popular photo tours around Washington, D.C., New Orleans, and New York City. And doing more than 600 workshops, I noticed there were 12 mistakes most photographers were making with their images. Now, If you want to know what they are and how you might measure up, you can check this Dirty Dozen list and see what's keeping you from taking your best pictures, creating your meaningful art, and making your ultimate impact. Go to 12photomistakes.com. There I have a free ebook and a free audiobook for those of us who prefer listening rather than reading. And you can download both and listen to them or read the 12 mistakes and see where you might be measuring up. That's 12photomistakes.com to see how you are doing and how you're measuring up against 12 of the most common mistakes photographers make. Go get it now. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Shutterbug Life podcast. This, of course, was episode 60060. If you want to find this, go to shutterbuglife.com forward slash podcasts. And if you search for 060, it ought to pop right up if you put it into the the search uh, bar. Now, this we do every week. We have, I try and have something interesting and informative for. For you, if you are a photographer who's just trying to be better, meaning uh, what are all the things we need to learn to to be better photographers? And if you all if you enjoy this, I'm going to invite you to subscribe. Go to shutabuglife.com forward slash subscribe. And uh, and then whenever there's a new episode, I'll send you an email. And so you will not have to worry about missing another episode. If you have friends who are also photographers who you think might might enjoy this, I'd, please just share it with them. Pass, pass this on to them and invite them into our community. Speaking of community, we are live and kicking on Facebook. If you go to the Facebook group, which is f- facebook.com, 
well, just go to fb.shutterbuglife.com. It'll take you straight there. We share during the between episodes during the week and during the month as we shoot uh, pictures and things that might be interesting to you. So it, it's a fun community. Just come on in and join us there. We'd love to hear from you and see what kinds of things you are shooting. If you're in the Washington, D.C. or New York City areas, we have a meetup group in each of those cities, and we get out and shoot and share quite frequently. Again, friendly group of photographers. You, No matter where you are on your learning path or your experience level, you're likely to find a home and find people who you can connect with. So, and then I'll finally, if you want to learn photography, I teach both in Washington, D.C. and New Orleans. I just wrapped up a weekend photography excursion in New Orleans. Going back again in October, it was just a blast. You can learn more about that at phototourneworleans.com. All these links will be on the show notes. So if you're interested, just go on there and, you know, click on through and check it out. I had so much fun in this episode and looking forward to talking with you guys again next week. So wherever you are and whatever you do this week, enjoy your Shutterbug life. Take care.